it was giving a lot of feedback, so we're not going to turn it up too loud today. Um, welcome to Gospel Community Church. I'm glad you're here. Um, my hope is that through the preaching, you'll all know Jesus a little more, grow in Jesus a little more, and go share the hope found in Jesus a little more. Um, so before we get started, let's, uh, let's bow our heads in prayer. Father God, I just thank you for today. And God, I just love the energy that was in the room this morning as people were coming in and the sun is shining and the kids are excited for the Easter egg hunt. There's just a lot going on, God, and it's all because of you, God, all because you came and entered into our lives, God, and you left your throne, you left your kingdom, God, to come down here to save us, God, that we are precious to you. And I just thank you for your amazing grace. And I just pray that as I speak today, God, I would speak your words and that people would have hearts to hear and just would fall in love with you, God. And I say these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So before I get started uh, into the sermon for this week, uh, I got, me and my wife, we went up this Friday to uh, FitCon, and they had some MMA fights there. And as most of you know, I fought in an MMA fight, and it didn't go so well. Well, this time I decided I was going to take uh, my, my try at being the MC. So I was up there, I was the guy announcing, bringing the fighters in, um, just getting the crowd hyped up. And uh, my wife also joked about that we're going to start an Instagram page called What Will Nick Do Next? <laughs> I seem to just be adventurous and want to try different things all the time. And uh, I enjoy it. It was a lot of fun. They paid me to do it, which was even better. And it went a lot better than my fight did. So, um, and, and, you know, I, I talk about that fight night of mine a lot um, because I'm amazed at how much God grew me through that. And, like, I feel like that was my, my wrestling match with God and, and the things that happened afterwards. And I still ponder on it. And, and I even am using it today in, in today's sermon. And I've got a picture here that, that I want to show you guys. If you'll bring that picture up, Chris. This is right after I got knocked out, and, and they snapped this picture, and I call this picture my agony of defeat. And I look at all the faces in this picture, and, and I kind of, like, I wonder what's going on in each of, each of our heads. I know what was going on in mine. I knew what had just happened. It sucked. I, I felt defeated. I, I was beat down, and it was not fun. And I look at Andy's face. He's got a genuine concern for my health. He looks like he's just kind of worried about how I'm doing, like that I just got knocked out. And then Mike's face is there, and he's kind of consoling me. This is Mike right here. He was my main coach. He walked through me through that whole fight camp, and, and he was by my side. And he's just kind of sitting there consoling me, not really what, sh you know, what to say. And leading up to this picture, this agony of my own defeat, you know, there's the, the fanfare and the hype of coming in and walking down the aisle out to the cage. And I picked a song. It's by King's Kaleidoscope. It's called Defender, and it's about, you know, Jesus being there to lift me up, Jesus being there to, you know, being my defender. And it was a real good song that got me hyped up. And as I'm walking out, you know, all my friends and family are there gathered as I'm walking down the aisle. And they're there giving me high fives, and it's all fun, and it's, it's great, and everybody's cheering me on, and my wife's there, my kids, you know, Romolo's there, my mom and dad are there, all my friends are there, and it's like, heck yeah, we're, we're ready to go, we're ready to do this. Then I get into my fight, and, and you know how, it, most of you know how it all happened, I got knocked out in 12 seconds. This picture snapped, they raise the hand, I go down, I get checked out by the doctor, they decide I need stitches, and then it comes to walk out of the cage. And it's a lot different. There's not as much fanfare. There's not as much as excitement. There's not as big of a crowd gathered around. And, and 
I can see down at the end of the hallway, or, you know, at the end of the aisle, my wife's waiting there, and Rome's waiting there, and she lets him go, and he runs to me and just gives me a big hug, and all the fanfare is lost. And why, why, like, I thought of this as I was reading about Jesus' triumphant entry. When he's coming into the city, and there's all the fanfare, and there's all the hype about Jesus coming in. So we're going to open up our Bibles now to Matthew chapter 21, and we're going to look into that triumphant entry today. As this marks the beginning of some call it Passion Week, some call it Holy Week, um, whatever you want to call it. But today is Palm Sunday, and we're going to dive into a little bit of what Palm Sunday is about. <coughs> Matthew 21, uh, we'll start in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible, should be a Bible under one of the chairs. You can keep that, it's yours, and you can follow along on the screen here. By the way, my voice hates me today after emceeing, and then we had practice last night for Good Friday service, and then this morning, and now this, and my voice is like, what are you doing to me? All right, verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. Humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did, the, did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and the others cut branches from the trees and spread them out on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said this, This is the prophet Jesus from the Nazareth of Galilee. Gal Galilee. Galilee. This is God's word. So as I said, that today is Palm Sunday, and it's the beginning of Passion Week or Holy Week, whatever you want to call it. And what happens here is we have the most important figure in history marching into, at the time, what was the greatest city. And this is arguably one of the most important weeks in history. When everything that transpired this week, it's arguably one of the most important things in history. It led up to our Savior dying on the cross and being resurrected. And as I look at uh, what Jesus does here to, to fulfill the scripture, fulfill the prophecy about how he rides in, he's kind of his own social media director. He, he comes in, he chooses, you know, he, ha he has the choice to ride in on the donkey's colt and not only to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah, but it also is illustrated the contradiction for the kind of king that the Israelites were expecting. They were expecting him to be something else. So he comes riding in on this donkey's colt. And what happens is he's riding in, they're laying down their garments and they're cutting off the trees of these palm branches and they're putting them down as a red carpet as he's marching into the city. 
And it's not only an act of praise, but it's also a, a statement of nationalistic pride for the Israelites. And as they were doing this, they had some expectations of Jesus. That he would be a political leader, that he'd be an economic leader, that he would be a social advocate for Israel. But that wasn't the kind of king that Jesus was coming to be. That wasn't the kind of ruler that Jesus was coming to be. And so today, as we go through Palm Sunday and what was happening this day, we're going to talk a little bit about, uh, I got some things up here, judgment and hope. So we're going to talk about judgment and hope as we talk about, uh, go through this. And then expectations and reality. So keep that in mind as we walk through. I'm going to walk you through a, another book of the Bible. Keep in mind, judgment and hope and expectation and reality. And we're going to dive into why they thought he would be this king, this social justice warrior, this political king, this economic king that was going to just pull them out of uh, you know, all their vices and they were going to rule the world. So we're going to jump into the book of Isaiah. I'm just going to break it down for you guys. I don't have any passage. If you want to open and take notes as we're going through it uh, into the book of Isaiah, but I, don't, I didn't pull a bunch of passages because uh, it would take me like a whole series of sermons to go through it. So I, I try to condense it all into, uh, you know, 20 minutes, hopefully. So we're going to talk about Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet and he lived in Jerusalem and he was there in the latter half of Israel's kingdom reign. And he was, he, he was God's voice. He spoke on God's behalf to the leaders of Israel. And in doing so, in this book of Isaiah, he brought a message of judgment and hope. And so first he brought this message of judgment, that you're being rebellious against God, and it's going to cost you. It is not going to be fun. You're not going to like it. Nations will rise against you. These nations, Assyria and Babylon, they're going to rise against you. And he brought this message of judgment. And like I said, along that, he brought a message of hope. That one, you know, through this, God's covenant promise will be fulfilled. And a future king will rise from the line of David, fulfilling the covenant that God made with them. So now let's break down those covenants. Let's break this down a little more. That's like a, a general synopsis of, of the whole book, but we're going to go down and break it into some different sections. So the first 12 chapters, chapter 1 through 12, really hit heavy on that judgment and hope for Jerusalem. And this is where Isaiah calls out the leaders for their rebellious acts, for their injustices, for, <coughs> excuse me, for their idol worship. And this is where he warns them that nations will rise and nations will conquer them. But he says, this will be a purifying fire for a new Jerusalem. And the purpose of this purifying fire is that it will rid Israel of all that is worthless. And this new Jerusalem will be populated by all those who repent. This is when God's kingdom will come. This will be when there is no more injustice. This will bring peace for all nations. The old Jerusalem will pass and the new Jerusalem will be established. And right smack dab in the middle of these first 12 chapters, we have a vision by Isaiah. And it's in chapter 6. And here we have, we see God is sitting on his heavenly throne. 
And he's surrounded by these heavenly creatures. And each creature is there, and they've got six wings, and the creatures have uh, two wings covering their eyes, two wings covering their feet, and they're flying with two wings. And they're all surrounding God, and they're crying, Holy, 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 the earth is full of his glory. Just singing praise to God, these amazing, beautiful, heavenly creatures. And Isaiah's there standing, watching it go on. And in that moment, Isaiah sees his own corruption, his own ugliness. And a heavenly creature approaches him. And he's got some tongs and he pulls a hot coal out of the altar and he's approaching him with this coal. Now I think if I was sitting there in that vision, I'd be like, oh man, this is it. I'm done for. I'm the, woe is me, God. That's what Isaiah says. I'm done. Just take me now. And as that heavenly creature approaches, he places that hot coal on his tongue. And as I was reading this, you know, this, is a, kind of this burning coal is a, a representation of God's holiness. He takes this and he places it on Isaiah's tongue and he sets him apart. And he commissions him. He says, go and continue proclaiming my judgment. And this is like you see this verse plastered on walls or on little coffee cups and says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. And it's that, you know, in that context, it sounds encouraging. But what God says next is they're not going to listen. They're not going to like what you have to say. It's not going to be a fun mission. Israel is at a point of no return. They've hardened their hearts. The warnings aren't going to work. But I want you to trust my plan. Keep on going. It says, Israel is going to be chopped down like a tree and the stump will be burnt. But don't worry, a holy seed will survive. This holy seed will survive, and it's going to bring hope. So who or what is this holy seed? So now back into, you know, the, the whole book of Isaiah. We're going to move on, and we're going to come back to that holy seed. But now we have King Ahaz. He's a descendant of David, and Isaiah comes to him, and he warns him about the, the nation of Assyria. And he tells him it's not going to be good. He tells them, you know, a serious coming. But he says, but have hope. Emmanuel, God with us, is coming. The king, Emmanuel, God with us, is coming. He's going to set God's people free. He's going to be a new kind of king, empowered by God's spirit, and he will rule over the new Jerusalem. He will bring justice. He will bring peace. He will bring hope. His creation will trans, or his his kingdom will transform all of creation and bring peace. So that just covers through the first 12 chapters of Isaiah. So now we're going to hit 13 through chapters 13 through 23. When is this going to happen? Okay, we're getting there. Isaiah's getting there. And Isaiah's continuing on and prophesying. And he sees this nation of, of Babylon rising up. And that Assyria is going to fall to Babylon. But Babylon is even worse. They're more destructive. They're just heinous. They don't like God in any way. Their kings claim that they are higher than any other gods. They're just a bad nation, a bunch of bad dudes. But Isaiah tells them God will bring the Babylonians and their neighbors down. 
and we move on to ch through chapters 24, 27, and we have kind of this tale of two cities, the lofty city and the new Jerusalem, and God's rule will be a kingdom over all nations in this new Jerusalem. There will be no more suffering, no more death in this new Jerusalem. But this other city is going to be a, a, all about destruction and death, and they're not going to turn to God. They're going to turn away from God. They're into material things. This is the lofty city. And then we have the rise and fall of Israel. And what happens is that the rulers of Israel trust in Egypt for project, pr protection. They make a deal. They make a deal for, for Egypt to protect them from the Assyrian army, from the Babylonian army. And Isaiah comes to them. He says, no, trust God. Repentance is going to save you. It's not going to be Egypt. It's going to be God that saves you. And then we have the rise of, of King Hezekiah. And Assyria is coming, and he's coming, and they're coming to attack, and they're outside the city, and Hezekiah falls down on his knees, and he prays, and he asks for deliverance, and overnight, Hezekiah and the city is saved. And just as quickly as Hezekiah rose, he fell. He saw the, the immediate answer of God in his prayers to deliver him from, from the evil of Assyria, and he turns around and makes a deal with the Babylonians to protect them. He, he takes God and he trusts God. He puts him in his pocket and says, yes, we got this. He says, but don't worry, I got this one, God. And he puts him in his pocket and walks away. And he, he makes a deal with Assyria, or with Babylon. He makes a political alliance with them for the same thing of protection. And Isaiah comes and gives him the warning again. They will betray you. And sure enough, a hundred years later, Babylon turns on Israel. They destroy the city and they send them into exile. And as we look through this kind of first section of Isaiah, of this judgment and hope and these warnings that he's given us, it leads us to show, one, that Isaiah is a true prophet because everything he said happened. It all came true. And then the, the, the other purpose of, uh, of this, he reminds, you know, it's a good to look at that God's judgment, it was to purify. It was to purify Israel. It wasn't out of rejection. It wasn't because he didn't like them. It was to purify Israel, to set them apart. They're supposed to be holy. And so then we get into an announcement of hope. In the book of Isaiah, he, he tells them the exile is over. Return home. God's kingdom is coming. And there's an interesting perspective here because it's written as if it already happened when he's been writing that it hasn't happened yet. And Isaiah speaks as if the exile is over when in fact it happened 150 years after his death. And we look through the book of Isaiah and there's evidence that maybe he wrote these and he put them in scrolls and gave them to his disciples. And it says in 8... Uh, Isaiah 8, 16, bind up the testimony, still the teaching among my disciples. That he, whatever he wrote, he wrote for latter days. And this message of hope. So there's this announcement of hope and, and this, this, that the exile is over. But what happens is that Israel complains. They accuse God, telling God, you ignored us. 
you rejected us, rejected us, and they go on and they continue worshiping Babylonian idols. And they, they almost have like this, this like trial scene in a courtroom where they're putting God on trial and they're gonna, he's going to answer to them. And God says, this exile was not rejection, but judgment. And he says, also, it's for your sake. Because Babylon could not be conquered unless this happened. And Israel would, wouldn't be able to return home unless I put these pieces in place. And you would think the right answer for the, the Israelites would be like, you're right, God. You're a good God. I'm going to trust you. But if you can sense in the tone of my voice that they were still rebellious. They still didn't want to turn to God. They still thought that God was ignoring them, that they were the rejects, that God didn't want anything to do with them. But here he is trying to set them apart as his holy people and purify them. And Isaiah tells him that message of hope again. Here's what God is going to do. He's going to send a servant. He's going to be empowered by God's spirit. He will bring hope. He will be, bring peace. He will bring restoration. He'll be a light and he's going to set you free. That sounds a lot like that king that he was talking about earlier. It sounds a lot like that king that Isaiah was saying that he's going to set you free. He's going to be empowered by God's spirit. He's going to bring hope. He's going to bring peace. He's going to bring restoration. So now we have this servant king. How's the servant king going to make it happen? How's he going to do it? And Isaiah tells him, says he's going to be rejected. He's going to be beaten. And he's going to be killed. And he's going to do this because in reality, he's going to be murdered on behalf of the sins of his own people. His death will be a sacrifice for his own people's rejection and rebellion. That's how it's going to happen. This servant king, he's going to come down empowered by the spirit. He's going to be rejected and beaten and killed. And then suddenly in the book of Isaiah, this servant king is alive. And his death has provided a way for his people to become righteous. The wicked will reject him, the humble will accept him, and the, they will be the seed. They will inherit this new kingdom. The servant king announces God's kingdom, and he says, Be humble, repent, you will be forgiven, there will be no more death, no more suffering, and all nations are invited into that. So now we get back into judgment and hope and expectations and reality. This is what they knew as Jesus was coming into the city. As Jesus was sending his disciples out to collect a donkey, it doesn't say that the people questioned why they needed the donkey. They willfully handed him over. They were familiar with what was happening. The, the person that would be entering the city and as he was riding in on the donkey's colt and the, the crowds gathered and they're, they're taking off their garments and they're laying them down and they're over here cutting down. They got their shears out and laying them down and they knew who was coming into the city because they were familiar with this. 
but they had some expectations. Some expectations put on Jesus as he entered the city. And this is where we're going to really hammer in on the judgment and hope and expectations. Hey, look at that. Expectation and reality. Got it, Chris. Nailed it, bro. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about expectations first and what they put on Jesus. But I don't know if you know this about uh, expectations. I, found, I've, I have found it out the hard way, but I know when my expectations of something go unmet, I'm so happy about it. I'm so joyful about it. Not really. When my expectations go unmet, I seem to get bitter and angry and ugly. And one of the examples I thought of in this as I was preparing for this is a few years ago when Romolo was first born and Jess and I were living in our new house and I had some expectations of what fatherhood and being a husband was going to look like. You know what? We worked our financial situation out to where my wife could be a stay-at-home mom, and I thought I would go to work every day from 8 to 5. I'd come home. There would be a hot meal ready for me. After that nice hot meal, I'd put my dishes in the sink. She would clean up. I'd get to play with the baby, and then she would put him to bed. I'd get to relax, watch TV, and I had these expectations. <laughs> right? <laughs> And I had these unrealistic, unmet expectations, and I got mad. And I would get mad at my wife about it. And we would fight about it, and I put this pressure on her, and it was not well. And as I was walking through what these, like, these unmet expectations, and I was reading a book, and it brought up unmet expectations of what happens, and immediately I felt convicted. I was like, oh, man. Not only am I putting this tremendous weight on my wife, like I'm being held captive by this. And I, I went and I confessed to my wife my sins and, and that I, I'm sorry for putting these expectations on her and repented of that. And not to say now that like I still don't have unmet expectations because I would be standing up here lying, but you know, I, I, I have expectations. And when they go unmet and I don't communicate with people, I get angry, I get bitter, I get mad. So now we have these expectations, and you know, going back to Jesus as he's marching into the city and people are laying down their clothes and the palm leaves, and they're putting these expectations on Jesus of who they want him to be. They want him to be a political leader. They want him to overthrow the government. They want him to make their economy better. They want him to be a social justice advocate. They want him to be this earthly ruler on an earthly throne with his big old sword and staff, a warmonger, to destroy all other cities so they can have their new kingdom. And as we walk through Passion Week and as you read through Passion Week this week and we get to Good Friday, you'll see that those expectations go unmet. And when we have these expectations, we seem to pass judgment. When I had these expectations on my wife, I was passing judgment that she wasn't a good wife. When I put these expectations on Jesus, I'm passing judgment that he's not a good enough savior for me. And the reality of it is he is the savior that he is that servant king that was promised in Isaiah to come to be rejected and placed upon that cross. 
And as he came marching into the city, he was fully aware that that was going to happen. He was fully aware, and that's why it's the triumphant entry, because he wasn't scared. He didn't back down. He came marching into that city, knowing what was going to happen. And that, you know, no matter what the, the expectations we have for him are, like whether it be, you know, I think of some expectations that I've put on Jesus, that when I've placed my faith in Jesus, it's like, okay, Jesus, I'm trusting you in this. It's going to go smoothly. And, you know, that rarely happens. You know, being a pastor is hard, and sometimes I look and I think, okay, Jesus, I'm just going to place this in your hands, and everything's going to go smoothly in the church, and we're going to be well, and it's all going to be nice and dandy, but things aren't that easy. Jesus never promised that. And I think if people, somebody, you know, that was, uh, I've counseled that was having marriage problems, and they're like, but I've placed my faith in Jesus. It's supposed to be this way. No, he never promises that. I've placed my faith in Jesus, but my marriage is still falling apart. I've placed my faith in Jesus. My kids are still being crazy. I've placed my faith in Jesus, but he's not doing. We put those expectations on Jesus, and we put them in our pocket, and we think we've got all the answers. But the reality of it is, again, that he did it all right here. And that's what we have hope in. That's the message of hope. That, that we don't have to do it all. We don't have to, to take on that death because Jesus already did. That we can lay all of our expectations aside and quit passing judgment on who we want Jesus to be and really sink into the reality and hope of who Jesus is. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you for your amazing grace and, and just marching into the city, God, and coming in through, through the, the city gates or whatever it might be, God, that you willfully did it. You weren't scared. You didn't back down because you knew what was going to happen. You knew that you had to pay the price and you did it so willingly that your grace is sufficient, that no sin can outweigh your grace, God. And I pray today, God, that we could lay down all of our expectations of who we think you should be, who we want you to be, what we want to be, ha what happened, and that we would sink into the reality of who you are, that we would have hope in who you are, that we would just love and trust that you are good, and that through the good times, we would rejoice and celebrate and praise your name, and that through the hard times, we would just fall down at your feet and say, Jesus, I need you. To cling on to that, that precious Savior. The work that you came to do, God, is so good, and we love you and thank you and praise your name for that. And we say these things in Jesus' name.